0: in the beginning was not the solitude of one, but the communion of three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The three of them created all that is, and then on the sixth day had a conversation. It went like this. Let us make humanity in our image. And so in the image of God, he made man. In the image of God, he made them. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we get a closer look at what happened. It says that uh, God actually stooped, and from the dirt or the the dust of the earth, he formed the man and then breathed into his nostrils the breath. Hebrew word is the word for spirit of God, and he became a living soul. He placed that man inside of a garden with meaningful work, inside the boundaries of permission and restraint, with a tremendous amount of freedom and creativity. So the man knew his role, he knew the boundaries, he knew the consequences, and all was well until it wasn't. God then spoke another time, and this time to the negative. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So I will make a help mate or helper suitable to him. So God waited until Adam slept, took part of his body, and from it Formed another person and then brought that person to him. She became a helper suitable for him. The word literally means someone who is equal, but opposite and sufficient or adequate. The word helper is used 19 times in the Old Testament, 16 of those times it's used to describe God himself. So what God is making from his side is not an inferior being. It is someone who is equal to him, but opposite him. So there is complementarity in the two of them and she is sufficient and adequate for her role next to him. What God has then formed with the two of them is something that is very much like himself. For God is not an individual, he's a community. So when he creates humans in his image, He creates them as having life within themselves, but as finding their identity only in the community. This is exactly the way it is between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is why Jesus would say in John chapter 5, that the Son does nothing on his own. He does only what he sees the Father doing. He says, the Father has life in himself, and he has given it to the Son to have life in himself. So the Father and the Son each have life in themselves. Are you tracking? Yet you cannot know the other apart from the one. So Jesus would say in Matthew 11, verse 27, nobody knows the Son except the Father. And nobody knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Does this sound like Dutch to you or Greek? What he's saying is the two that God has made like God Himself is a community. Each has a life of their own, but the identity of each is found in the other. The serpent tempted. The woman, she ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Their eyes were opened. They realized that they were naked. And so they ran, and they started sewing fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. God came looking for Adam. That's gospel. It is human nature to hide from each other, from God. We have thousands of ways of doing it, but we never really want to let somebody else know who we are because you might not like who I am and so we hide and God is still looking we have a two-year-old grandson and last Christmas he decided to play hide and seek now the way he hides is like this So we say, okay, uh, let's play, you go hide. And he just stands there in plain sight. And then you play the game and say, Maddox, where are you? And then he goes, here I am. I know. Uh, Then he'll say, you, you, meaning now it's your turn to hide. So I just step into the closet. And he can't find me. He can't understand why I've disappeared. It's like I've been raptured and he's been left behind or something. You can hear him wandering around. And I, it, it occurs to me that the reason is because a two-year-old is not sophisticated enough to play hide and seek with an adult. He hides from you and he's still in plain sight. But if you hide from him, he has no chance of finding you. You're so far above him. It must be this way with God. Even though human beings have a proclivity to hide, this is as good as we can do. Thank God he still looks for us and says, where are you? like he doesn't know. But if he ever hides from us, he's done it before. If he ever hides from us, we have zero chance of finding him. He is so sophisticated and so far above your level of intelligence, whoever you are. So God comes asking Adam questions, the answers for which he already knows. Because God is not an accuser. He's more an inquisitor. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Now, all of a sudden, the two that were one and in their union were inside of God have severed their relationship with God and the two of them start moving apart. Self, other. Suddenly, the person who was once flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, for she was taken from me, is no longer a helper. She's a hindrance. It's it's that woman that you put here with me. I was fine. She gave me to eat, and I ate. All of a sudden, now in hiding, each of them find their identity not by looking out of themselves at the other, but by looking into themselves. And I might say that is probably the biggest myth still in this room this morning. You've been taught by your culture that your real authentic self Is some mystical entity that is buried deep inside of you and you will never find it until you look inward at your gifts and your pleasures and your desires and once you find that hidden self buried inside of you you must give it full expression that is a mentality that is developed here. That's the way you think in isolation. When, in fact, the way that you were created, you cannot discover yourself by looking into yourself. You have to look outside of yourself. For the simple fact that you were made in the image not of an individual, but of a divine community. You were made by three in one. So your God who made you is not a lonely figure. He belongs to a community. And you cannot know one without the other. Are you still tracking? Adam, where are you? I heard you coming in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. now separate, each of them covering themselves and looking within themselves, they are governed by two powerful motivators, fear and shame. Fear is the idea that if you let someone else into yourself or into your little community, it will damage you, us. So you must keep people out. You are only safe with yourself. You are the only person you can trust. That's fear. And shame is a scar deep in the human soul that says, I am not enough. I am inadequate. I am insufficient. And even if you don't have an accuser, you still wake up every day feeling like you have to perform to shut that voice up. I, 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 deal, I deal with so many people who fight this voice, this demon almost of shame. One of the games I think I've told you I played with people is to say, if you were called on to the stage to receive the most prestigious award in your life— and you got two free tickets to the front row, you could give them to whoever you wanted to give them to, who would you give them to? I want to know who's important in their life. I almost, I think I've asked the question 15, 20 times of different people. I think one time I had somebody give me an answer that was not their father. And for different reasons. Some have said, I want my dad to look up and say, you know what, it was worth it. But a lot more of them have said, I want my dad to look up and know that he blew it. I want my old man to know that I am not who he said I was. That's shame. So we overperform. And at the end of the day, it still is not enough to shut that voice up. So I started asking myself, you guys, how much of my life, no, how much of our life is controlled by fear, letting others in, or by shame, self destruction. And here's what I come up with when people are afraid, they exclude people. You build a wall to keep them out. When people are afraid, they form decisions or prejudices against people to justify keeping them out of our lives. We don't let them in because they're, well, they're like that. When people are afraid, they develop uh, systems of oppression, political systems social systems, economic systems, religious systems. And the Jews were full of these systems. We have gender regulations. We have dietary regulations. We have religious regulations. We are not them. We circumcise. The Gentiles don't do this. We worship on Sabbath, not not the Gentiles, but we do this. We don't eat that kind of meat. They do that. Do you see it? The thing that was given to them, so that with it they could bless the world, they have turned it inward, and it's become septic. And what it creates. Is an equal and opposite reaction instead of excluding people those who feel the shame isolate themselves and they develop their identities in private what I mean is they no longer talk of themselves in ways that they are similar to the whole They speak of themselves in ways that they are peculiar and different. Charles Taylor calls it the politics of difference. We find a peculiarity and then run it over the flagpole. It's identity politics. If I am not excluded into the community, then I will look inward at the ways I am distinct from the community, and that will be my new identity. And instead of prejudice, resentment. And instead of oppression, self abuse. I wonder how many people uh, in the room this morning are um, in one of those two categories. Well, I know some of us because a number of people have said to me that they don't think they belong in college church. Um, They've said that they think that they have to have it all together to come here. That's shame. Somehow I got to measure up because there's an an invisible... If you've not said that to me, and most of you have not, they think you all have it together. Boy, if they only knew, huh? If they only knew the things a PhD doesn't fix. I've had people in our congregation um, on the phone talking about them. Well, Pastor Steve, you've got to be careful. You've got to watch out for them. I said, Who's them? Well, You know. No, I don't know. I want you to say it. And he couldn't say it. The innuendo was enough. Who's them? Anyone who is not us. Gosh, I heard the disciples there. Jesus, we saw somebody, but we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Holy cow. Sorry, my mother would say I was swearing. Just a minute. <laughs> so I started to wonder how much of these things are built into the systems that we are beholden to. In other words, all the while we profess to be independent from these forces, they are powerful motivators of our performance and our overperformance. We are afraid of our shame and ashamed of our fear. That enough bad news for you? Then came Jesus preaching gospel. He said in Luke chapter four, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the gospel gospel. To the poor, to release the oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And when he rolled up that scroll and said, this day, those words are fulfilled in your hearing, he meant that the revolution had already begun. Well, I don't see it, you say. It doesn't matter what you see. In the words of Mary in the Magnificat, he is already lifting up the humble and bringing down the mighty, whether you see it or not. Nobody's waiting for you to see it. It's happening. You have the wrong news sources, it's happening before our eyes. And how exactly is he doing that, you say? Well, that's where it gets even better. Jesus starts healing people. And if you look at who he healed, you can see that the revolution has begun. He finished preaching a sermon one day, Sermon on the Mount, not a bad sermon. and He came off of that mount, and a leper ran up to Jesus and fell in front of him. The Gospel of Luke said he was covered head to toe with leprosy. One thing you got to know is leprosy was not simply a physical disease. It was a social one. Think of the coronavirus. If somebody has it right now, the rest of us are terrified because of that. So lepers were feared, and because of that, they were identified, then quarantined, and all of their network investigated, and they locked them outside the village, could not get inside the temple. So now, coming down from the mountain, this is his one shot. And the leper, who should not have even been anywhere near the people, runs up to Jesus, falls in front of him, and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. This is powerful because Jesus has just defied the stigma that lepers carry with them. You don't belong here. And instead of worrying about getting leprosy, Jesus is thinking what would happen to the other guy if he touches him. See, everybody else thinking, I touch him, what do I get? And Jesus is thinking, I touch him, what is possible? And so he says to the man, you're clean. Now go show yourself to the priest. And after you do that, you can come back into the community. Right after he does this, a centurion, a Roman, (laughs) a Roman soldier there were some Jews in Jesus' day used to kneel and say, O oh God, I thank Thee that Thou made me not a woman or a Gentile. Nice guys, huh? A Gentile with power and an upper-level income and a hundred men under his authority runs up to Jesus and says, i got a servant that's back home, and he's sick, and he's suffering, and you don't even need to come. I, I can't even have you in my house. You're better than that. Really? Just say the word, and he'll be whole. Jesus is thinking, first of all, the Romans despised their slaves— They had no compassion on anyone. Compassion was not a virtue in the Roman world. And they had no care for slaves. If they died, get another one. But here is one with power, worried about his slave, showing compassion. This is why Jesus said, in all of Israel, I've not seen anyone like that. Let me translate that for you. This is Jesus talking. I know a ton of religious people. I ain't met one like that. That ought to rattle you. You see how whole systems can do this to us? So Jesus says, Go on, go home. By the time you get there, he'll be up. And sure enough, he was. And then Jesus turns and says to all of the Jews that are around him, The day is coming when people will come from the East and the West, and they will sit at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me translate that for you. They will sit at the table of Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. These are your patriarchs. People will come from all over the world and they will eat at that table, but the children who think they belong at the table themselves will be put out into darkness. What is Jesus doing? He's preaching good news. And what is that good news? The good news is that in Jesus Christ, You have a new identity, and that identity defies all previous categories in this world. You are not clean or unclean. You are in Christ. You are not educated or simple. You are a follower and a child of God. You are not rich and poor, black nor white, you are children of God. You say, well, we know that. No, I don't think we do. I think we come to Jesus, and then after our sins are forgiven, we just default back to the same identities we had before, which is why this disease is as much in Christians as in anyone else. Because we've had our sins forgiven. But we have not changed our identities, people. And the good news is that all previous categories that were used to define you have been transcended by the identity of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he has taken you as an individual and he has brought you together in a kingdom and a nation without borders. Is powerful. Every time the Americans talk about fixing the nation, they talk about bringing people together. It's not enough. And the way that we talk about that is we're saying, well, whatever privileges one group of people have, let's give those privileges to another group, and then we will have equality. People don't want equality, they want union. Their souls are thirsty for what they had and lost. And we can't fix that with laws and legislations. Until we change the human heart, we will all of us invent ways to stay separate. It is our nature. I was talking to Bud just a few moments ago and I said it, I just, we were talking politics. And I, I, I said I, I wonder if so much of our division in the country right now is because over the last um, fifty to sixty years we have transferred too much of our identity onto the emperor, onto Washington, to define us, protect us, give us our dignity. And now that Washington is divided, we're divided. It was, it was flawed from the beginning, people. We have no identity outside of Christ. Only in Christ do we come together in something that is greater than each of us. So you can hang on to your particularities. You can still cherish your traditions and your histories. But in Christ, they are taken up in something that is larger. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, for you are all sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. He says, you were baptized in the name of Christ. You were not baptized in the name of your privilege or your minority status. You can have that, but that's not who you are. You were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, he has made the two one. He has torn down the wall of hostility between them and formed in himself one new person out of the two. Therefore, you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are citizens of God's kingdom. That's who you are. That's who you are. This is why Peter would say, you Are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you would declare the praises of Him who took you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Can you see? He is giving us a new identity. He's not just bringing us together, we're not just getting along. Two last caveats. One, there's a lot of people in this service right now that are convinced that the gospel must speak to these conditions. Steve, tell them that if they do not deal with our prejudices and our oppression and our resentment, They haven't heard the gospel. Okay, but first things first. If the gospel does not change me as an individual and therefore change my ethics as an individual, can I just say it doesn't matter what my opinion is about any of those things? Because you cannot change a culture by posting stuff. Posting convictions does not change anyone's mind. If you're against what the country is doing to marriage, then quit talking and get married and stay married for 70 years. The culture needs a witness, not an argument. If you want open borders, open your house. If you want the redistribution of wealth, give your money away. Don't start with somebody else's money, start with yours. enough? It has to be personal. That is our best case. Otherwise, it's just one opinion among many. Flip it. Just because Jesus Christ has changed my life, if I do not push the teachings of Jesus into the public realm, and if I do not say Jesus Christ makes claims on some of the conditions in our culture. He has things to say about how wealth has been distributed. He has things to say about how uh, people are oppressed. If I refuse to let that gospel come out of me and affect the relationships around me, that is not the gospel either. The gospel is both, isn't it? It changes me first, and then through me, others.